pray together. Our God, you are such a wonder, and your Son is such a wondrously great saving Lord. What we need is what we most long for, to know him and to know him better. This passage will help us greatly if your Holy Spirit will but open our eyes and hearts to see Christ more vividly and to understand better what it is to know him and to walk with him. Oh, do teach us and change us today. Don't make us smarter, but do make us holier. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sermon title is Buoyant Faith, Deadweight Doubt. What is the core of discipleship, Christian discipleship? It is learning to know and to trust and to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is learning to walk with him, which involves all those things, knowledge, trust, submission. Both of these meet in this extremely vivid, gripping, and rich story to our prophet. We could easily do a series just on this section and profit from it much, but we will go through it today together. Though it may be like drinking from a fire hose once again, God help us to hear and hear well. I'm going to first uh, approach this by expounding the the section, and then we'll return to it and focus on application, though there will be exposition in the application and application in the exposition. You can't really leave either if you're doing them right. But Roman numeral one, we see an intense tale of schooling at sea in this portion of scripture. Schooling at sea. I'm going to approach it as if it were a play in three acts. So the first act is the prologue, verses 22 and 23 opening with a quick dismissal in verse 22. I read you my translation of the Greek text as you have it in your outline. And immediately he compelled the disciples to get into the boat and to precede him unto the other side while he released the crowds. Well, you can't skip that word immediately. It, It occurs three times in this section. As a matter of fact, this is the first. Immediately. So Matthew's telling us that this follows hard on the heels of what they'd just gone through. And what's that? Uh, That's their going across the sea to try to get a break and some time to themselves and just immediately being confronted with these needy crowds, uh, none of them having brought enough food to eat. And when they bring that to Jesus' attention, he says, well, you feed them. And uh, we studied their reaction in Jesus' action last week. This had been quite a deal for them. And immediately after that, uh, John tells us that the crowds were wanting to seize Jesus and make him king. So Jesus immediately sends his disciples across. He wants them to get in the water right now because he has something planned for them. And they need to get in the boat and start rowing right away that they can be at the right place at the right time for what he has for them. And meanwhile, he sends the crowds away after compelling the apostles to get... The apostles uh, apparently resisted him. They didn't want to leave him alone. But Jesus was very insistent that they get into the boat and they head off towards the other side. He didn't say go halfway across and sink. He said go to the other side. That's just important to note here. It was a very deliberately set up situation by the Lord Jesus. We'll see that means a lot. So uh, they'll get to the other side because that was Jesus' command and God's commands are God's enablings. If Jesus wants them across, well, they'll get across. Quick dismissal. Then secondly, verse 23 shows us extended prayer. And after he released the crowds, Matthew writes, 
he went up into the mountain privately to pray. And after evening fell, he was there alone. Well, if he was there alone, how did Matthew know? Matthew wasn't with him. He was out on sea fighting the elements. How did he know Jesus did this? Well, obviously Jesus told him later what he'd done. Why did Jesus tell him? To teach us so that he would remember and write it down for our instruction. Because who's our model? The Lord Jesus is our model. What is Jesus doing here? He's finding time to pray. In fact, he's finding a lot of time to pray, isn't he? But you say, well, I wish I could, but I'm much too busy to pray. I have a question. Are you busier than Jesus? Well, you say there's things that I simply must do. Nobody else can do them. Really, are you more indispensable than Jesus? Because here's things that Jesus had to do that nobody else could do. And yet he found time, he made time to be alone with his father in prayer. It was important to him. Luke makes a lot of that. This is not an isolated incident. This is a practice of Jesus. He would make sure he always had time to pray. And so while we might say, well, I've just got too many important things to find time to pray, uh, I think Jesus' example says to us exactly the opposite, doesn't it? I've got too many important things to not find time to pray. He was so busy and so indispensable, he had to find time to be alone with his father and to pray. And what did he pray for? Wouldn't you have liked to have heard the the prayers of this mysterious being ascending to his heavenly father when he's in private? Well, I actually think that the rest of the story tells us what he was praying about. I think we see the answers to his prayers in what happens in the, uh, in the story to come. And just a little uh, something uh, on, as an aside. I, I've pointed these things out a number of times as we've gone through uh, Matthew's Gospel. This is another one of those places, one of these little unconscious touches that shows us that it was written by an eyewitness, a contemporary, a local. It was written by somebody who knows that you can go straight from the shore of the Sea of Galilee up into the hills because he'd been there. Now, this contrasts completely. You hear a lot made about apocryphal Gospels as if these ones were just chosen at random, but there's lots of other Gospels. None of these other Gospels has anything like the things we've already seen a number of times and we see here. I mean, suppose I were to tell you uh, that I was at Lost Lake in California and I put down my fishing rod and just went for a walk through the flat, lovely green meadow with wildflowers and butterflies that I, that I found on the shore. Well, you'd say, I guess that's fine, because none of you has been there. But the fact is, that's not Lost Lake at all. Lost Lake in California is surrounded with trees on one side and rocky cliffs on the other side. If I wrote that, somebody who knew could tell I'd never been to Lost Lake. But you can tell that this was written by somebody who knows the Sea of Galilee, somebody who was a local. Matthew, writing what he knows about. We're reading history. We're not reading a novel. That is very important to keep in mind. And as we've seen, there are many, many touches like that in this gospel. So we've seen the prologue, the quick dismissal, the extended prayer. Now letter B, let's begin digging into the unfolding drama. Matthew throws us right in there in verses 24 through uh, 33, the unfolding drama. And like a, a good storyteller will do, he begins with the build-up in verses 24 through 25, noting first the surprisingly distant boat. Verse 24. Now the boat already was many stadia distant from land, though tormented by the waves, for the wind was contrary. 
So this distance from the land, a stadium is a unit of measurement they used. Stadium was about 607 feet. So I got out my uh, calculator because John says in his gospel there are about 25 to 30 stadia. That's how many. So 607 times 25 to 30 means that they were about two to three miles across a lake that is five to seven miles wide. So where does that put them? Right in the middle of the lake, not in sight of any shore in any direction. Nothing but water all around them. That's important to note. That's why Matthew tells us this. And it's also important to note because it's really kind of remarkable to Matthew that they'd actually managed to get that far because, what does he say? They were, the, the, the boat was being tormented by the waves because the wind was contrary. Now, it's really interesting the words used in the Greek text. They're kind of personal, as if, as if there's something personal behind the elements that are opposing them, hostile to them, making it hard for them to make headway. And they're all experienced boatmen, you know. They're all experienced fishermen. They know that lake. They know how to sail. This is nothing new to them. They know, as we've talked in the past, that winds come down at night through the ravines and they can just absolutely make a, um, a, a complete mess out of the surface of that lake. Well, they're, they're struggling across that. They're opposed by the winds. And yet, still, they'd made it that far, but they weren't near any shore. That's very important to note. So, we see the surprisingly distant vote. Letter B, very casually introduced, we have a late hour shocker. That's what goes in those blanks for verse 25. A late hour shocker. Matthew writes, And on the fourth watch of that night, he came up to them, walking across the sea, you know, as one does, never, (laughs) unless you're Jesus. He came to them walking across the sea. Now let's first notice the time. He says it's the fourth watch. That's a, a, a Roman us, uh, a unit of measurement of time, of night time. A watch is the time during which security would be on duty. And it was divided up into four watches of three hours each. The time between 6 p.m. and 6 a.m. There were four watches of three hours each. So if it's the fourth watch, then that makes it between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning. In other words, the latest, the last, the darkest, the nastiest watch. They're out there in the deep dark, and they've rowed all night after a busy day that began with them rowing across the lake and then dealing with all these people, and now they're rowing again against the wind all night long. So they're knackered. They're they're completely thrashed. Their strength has to be at its last ebb, and they're not but halfway across. So they're, they're experienced, probably not panicking, I wouldn't think, but it's got to be discouraging, and they're, they've got to be low. And while they're there working on this, what happens? Jesus comes up to them, walking across the water. Now, as I told you about the miracle last week, there are people who try to explain this away. And he's walking across the shore, and they see his reflection. Three miles away? In the dark? I don't think so. The, the language, the Greek language, just naturally loans itself to the obvious meaning, which is he's walking across the lake, on the lake. He's on the surface of the water, and he's walking. Now, this is a remarkable thing, but we remember what maybe they didn't, which is he just spent the day creating food, right? 
He just ended the day, I should say, creating food, using a few pita breads and a couple of fish to feed thousands and thousands of people. So that same person who used this creative power to multiply the food is now walking across the surface of the water. So, of course, this is a miracle, but more than a miracle, it's specifically a God thing. There are a lot of passages in the Old Testament that talk about God walking on the water. Nobody else. Moses walked through the water, but he didn't walk on the water. But there are verses like Job 9, verse 8, which speaks of God and says, Who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea? Job 9, 8. That's a thing God does. He tramples across the waves of the sea. Job 9, 8. Psalm 77, 19. Your way, God, was in the sea and your paths in the mighty waters, but your footprints were not known. Footprints on the water because God walks on water. Psalm 77, 19. And finally, of the ones I've picked out, as I said, there are a number. Isaiah 43, 16. Thus says Yahweh, who makes a way through the sea and a path through the mighty waters. Isaiah 43, 16. So walking on water is a God thing, like multiplying food is a God thing. And they see Jesus doing that. So again, to the fellow who says, well, Jesus never said, I am God. And he may not have said those exact words in that order, but he's constantly saying God things and he's constantly doing God things. And I think that if it quacks long enough, I'm going to start suspecting it's a duck. And he speaks as God, and he acts as God, and in a few moments we will see them worshiping him as God, the Son of God, and we won't see him stop them. Any angel that you, that is, somebody falls down and worships an angel, or an apostle, immediately the angel or the apostle says, have you completely lost your mind? Stop that. But Jesus won't. The picture is starting to come together, I think. So number two, unsurprisingly, now comes the climax of this story that Matthew has set up so masterfully, the climax in verses 27 through 32. And not surprisingly, the first thing that we're greeted with is terror in verses 26 through 27. Terror, T-E-R-R-O-R. It sparked in verse 26. Now remember, you've got to remember, they had not read this story. (laughs) So you say, oh, I'm not that scared by these things. You're not. You've read the story. They never read this story. They didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't know what was happening. They were in it. So we read, But the disciples, seeing him upon the sea walking, were shaken. Now, that's a strong word. They were rattled, we might say. They were shook up, saying, It's a ghost! And they cried out from fear. Cried out meaning they screamed, they hollered, they yelled. Can you imagine? Because they think they're seeing an apparition. Uh, some supernatural being appeared. Now, I, I just imagine the, the sheer horror of this moment. It's one thing in an air-conditioned light room with our friends to read about this, but put yourself in this boat in the Stygian blackness of the night there. Maybe some stars, maybe the moon. It's not mentioned, though. Some starlight, that's just enough to give sort of an eerie, twilighty uh, a sheen to things. Uh, the most light they might have had is they might have had a lamp in the boat of some sort, but what's the candle light of a candle? 
One. <laughs> One candlelight, so it doesn't go that far. And what it would show them would not be reassuring. So they're, they're fighting the waves. And how do they first become aware of Jesus? I mean, you're in the middle of the water. You might expect to come on another boat, although probably not that time of night. No sane persons out on the sea, just disciples of Jesus. So, uh, so they're not expecting to see another boat. But well, I mean, do they, do they hear splish, 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 splish? The unmistakable sound of two feet splashing on water. Is that the first thing they, they hear? How would that terrify you? Or is it, do they, is it too noisy for them to hear that? And instead, do they see a form? Up and then, Wait a minute, now it's down behind the wave. I can't possibly, oh, it comes again. Oh, there it is. It's still there. And each time a wave goes and comes back up, it's still there. And the thing is, it's getting closer. Now, how terrifying would that be? The, the hair would stand up all over your arms and the back of your neck. You, your eyes would go white. You would be absolutely, I would be absolutely terrified. And, and so, gripped and, and faced with this, they just reach for what they've got. I mean, they've got no category for this. And unfortunately, they don't go back to the Old Testament scriptures. They go to common superstition. And they think that they're seeing an apparition. Is it a, is it a demon? Is it just some spirit, spirit force on the lake? I don't know. They're, they're not thinking very rationally. It's their terror thinking. It's their terror talking. Emotion is absolutely in control at this section. And so they cry out in absolute terror. It's, it, it's, it's such a, a, an amazing thing to read this. You know, this isn't written as, as a, a fiction would be written. If, if this were written by a disciple or something, he'd want to make them look good, or he might make them say, oh, that must be Jesus, you know, walking on the water, as Jesus is due, you know. But instead, they're very realistically depicted. They don't know what to think, and so they're absolutely terrified when they see this. You see growth in them. There, there is a, there's an arc of development as they learn more about Jesus, because you'll see in a moment, they do learn about him from this. But they don't start off there. They start off there like normal people, just as we would. They're absolutely terrified. It's sparked by the sight of Jesus walking across the water to them in defiance of every law of nature that they know anything about. So secondly, though, you see this terror calmed in verse 27 and immediately Jesus spoke to them saying take heart it is I stop being afraid now here we have the second immediately of the three in this story immediately he speaks to them they scream he speaks they're terrified he tells them the truth it is I stop being afraid so notice how truth is sandwiched between two commands addressed to their emotions he says Stop, he says, um, lost myself, take heart and stop being afraid. Both of those are addressed to their emotions. On the one hand, do feel calm courage. On the other hand, don't feel fear. And in between these sandwiched commands to their emotions, we'll return to that, is the truth in the middle. Why should they feel a calm courage? Why should they stop fearing? Because it's him. Because he is who he is. Jesus commands their emotions based on the truth. So Jesus, who we see doing God things, now says a God thing when he says, it is I. Now, the, the Greek words are ego, eimi, which means I, I am. Ego is the pronoun, eimi is the verb, I am. 
Ego eimi is I, I am. So he's probably not pointing back to Exodus 3.14 where Yahweh says, I am that I am. But he is probably pointing to something that we see again and again in the Greek translation of the Old Testament where God says, Ego eimi. Now, there's lots of passages where God says, I am he is the way it's usually translated. I'll just give you a few, just three. Deuteronomy 32.39 is probably the earliest of them. In Deuteronomy 32.39, Yahweh says, See now that I, I am he. And in the Greek translation, it's ego eimi, just like Jesus says here. And there is no God beside me. I am he, says Yahweh. Deuteronomy 32.39. Isaiah 41.4. Who has worked and done it, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, Yahweh, am the first and with the last. I am he. And the Greek text has ego eimi, the Greek translation, ego eimi. Yahweh says what Jesus would later say. And Isaiah 43.10, that was Isaiah 41.4, now Isaiah 43.10. You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. In the Greek translation, ego eimi, I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. So here are things God says and Jesus says. Stop being afraid. Take heart. Ego eimi. I am he. Now, to kind of understand the force of that, imagine you heard a preacher who started taking this saying, verily, verily, I say unto you, and then he'd say something that was his own thought. Or truly, truly, I say unto you, and then he says something that's his own thought. What, what would you think if you heard that? You'd think, well, unless he's joking or something, you'd think, well, he's trying to talk like Jesus. That's when, Jesus is the only teacher who ever said, amen, amen, I say to you, verily, verily. I, he's trying to take on the errors of, of talking like Jesus. That's kind of weird. But here Jesus is talking like God. He's talking like Yahweh. And in a few moments, they're going to worship him. So they did not miss the point of him saying, ego eimi. Don't be afraid. I am he. So, uh, terror is sparked. Terror is calmed by Jesus' words. And now terror turns, letter B, to trust in verses 28 through 39. Verses 28 through 39. And first we see trust flexed in verses 28 and 29. I said 28 through 32. Now in verses 28 and 29, we see trust flexed. Flexed. I'm sorry, yes, trust flexed. And in answer, Peter said, Lord, if it is you, order me to come up to you across the waters. And he said, come. Oh, boy. And getting down from the boat, Peter began to walk across the waters, and he came up to Jesus. Well, look, make fun of Peter all you want, but you got to give to him. Jesus called his bluff, and out he came of the boat. Now, I guess it wasn't a bluff, because out he came from the boat. I mean, you, you, like I say, we, we, we mock Peter, we make fun of Peter, and Peter immediately speaks here, but, but he speaks in a way that puts himself in the game. Now he's got skin in the game. He doesn't say, if it's you, you know, um, give me a pony, you know, <laughs> or something dumb that he's not even involved in, like do a trick for me. No, he says, if it's really you, then you command me, and I can walk across the water to you. Peter had a confidence that if Jesus said to do it, he could do it. So he puts himself in it, and he says that. 
I take it as not a bluff because when Jesus immediately says, well, come then, out he goes. So I, I give Peter massive props for getting out of that rising and falling boat, stand on that choppy water and start walking towards that figure in the dark. And the, the Greek syntax suggests that Jesus is coming right up to the boat, so he's not very far away, but he is standing on water because where are they? Miles from the shore. They're nowhere near a shore. So Jesus is standing on the water. Whether he's near or far, he's standing on the water. And so to get to him, Peter's going to have to walk on the water. With no shore, no rocks, no nothing. So uh, he says, order me. Now, command me. It's the same word that's been used a couple of times. Uh, the most recently, uh, Jesus commanded the crowds to sit down. And so now Peter says to Jesus, order me to walk to you across the water, if it's really you. And so uh, Jesus does that. He says, come. So uh, Spurgeon notes here, uh, now that Peter's gotten down out of the boat, Spurgeon notes, now two are on the water. And then he asks, which is the greater wonder? Let the reader reflect. And I thought at first, I thought, okay, well, obviously, oh, wait a minute. (laughs) Yeah, which is the greater wonder? Is it a greater wonder that the Lord of creation, who just did an act of creation in giving food to thousands, that he who created the laws of nature and is the Lord of the laws of nature, is it a greater wonder that he should walk on the water? Or is it a greater wonder that a fallen child of Adam who believes in him should walk on the water? That's a good question. But the least you can say is there are two wonders there, and they both focus on Jesus. Two walk on the water two wonders, both to the glory of Jesus. So that's trust flexed, but next we see trust faltering. Number two, verse 30, faltering, F-A-L-T-E-R-I-N-G, trust faltering. But, and Spurgeon says, that is a sad conjunction in Peter's life, but, we have the word but, but seeing that the wind was strong, and this comes right after such a victory, Such a high point in his life, but immediately, seeing the wind was strong, he became afraid. Very thing Jesus had just said, stop doing. He became afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. Well, as long as he walked in obedient faith, Peter did the impossible. He walked on the water. Now, we need to note very carefully, this this shows us that Peter walked on water through no inherent ability in himself. Uh, One of the commentaries I have is by people who in the scholarly world would be considered conservative, but but not not to me, Um, but just about everybody's to the left of me (laughs) in that field. But but they're, they're they're debating about whether we should take this as a historical event or, or what? And one of the suggestions they come up with is, is this just an, an instant of some as yet undiscovered human potential? No. <laughs> no, it's not. No, it's not. Why? Because Peter only walks on the water while he's looking at Jesus in faith. But the moment he takes his eyes and his faith off of Jesus, he does what we'd all do. He sinks. <laughs> Like, like every one of us would do. He kind of, you know, he follows his namesake. What does Peter mean? It means rock. And he sinks the same way <laughs> as soon as he stops trusting in Jesus. As he has no inherent power in himself. He did it by the command of Jesus. And through obedient faith, Jesus gave him the ability. But shift the faith, shift the focus. 
that ability is also gone. So this is what, what's happened here. It's a matter of shifting faith and focus. His faith and his focus are on Jesus, and he walks on the water. But then he has more faith in the water and the storm and the wind and the waves and focuses on them, and then he loses. He has had buoyant faith, but now he has deadweight doubt, and he begins to sink just like his name. So we've seen trust flexed. We've seen trust faltering. And now we see trust fortified in verses uh, 31 and 32. Trust fortified, F-O-R-T-I-F-I-E-D. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him. And he says to him, little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got up into the boat, the wind abated. (laughs) So here's the third of three immediately's. And so gracious, so gracious, Peter begins to sink and, and cries out for help, and Jesus immediately helps him. He doesn't, you know, watch him drown and blubble and say, you know, you really should have trusted more. <laughs> he does lecture him, yes. He does challenge him, yes, but he does it after he pulls him out of the water. He reaches out, grabs him, and pulls him up. So, boy, he not only was standing on the water, he had, he had purchase on the water, didn't he? He wasn't able just to stand on it. He could pull up a whole entire grown man uh, without himself sinking. That's pretty amazing. And uh, I remind you that this word little faith, it's a word that Jesus evidently made up. We don't see it any, anywhere else in Greek literature before Jesus uses it. And here he uses it as an affectionate, if chiding, nickname for Peter. That's the way it's phrased in the Greek uh, syntax. Little faith, he calls him. Little faith. Little faith, why did you doubt? Uh, just uh, worth pausing and to reflect. We think it's amazing, and it is, that Peter had enough faith to step out of that boat and walk on the water at all. But Jesus finds it amazing that he didn't have enough faith to keep walking. Now, we'll return to this later, but, but notice that heaven does not share our sympathy with doubt. We're kind of always on the side of the doubter. And you'll never ever see an angel or God say, you know, I really understand why you don't believe. You just never ever see that. Uh, And you don't see it here. Why did you doubt? Either for what purpose or for what reason did you doubt? What what, what possibly would make you doubt? you You never were walking on water because of the wave and the storm. You're walking on water because of me. How have I changed? How have my abilities changed? Why do you doubt? Why do you doubt little faith? And that's, uh, that's a fortification of trust and that Jesus still shows Jesus is who Jesus is. Our faith comes and goes. Our faith rises and falls, but Jesus is always who Jesus is. So then finally we see the truth in verse 33, which they all now realize again and more deeply. And those in the boat worshipped him. Now notice, before I get there, verse 32, when they got up into the boat, the wind abated. Wouldn't it have been nice if it had done that before, but that wasn't the way Jesus set up the test. The wind had to keep up until that point. And now the lesson was over, and so Jesus flicks the wind switch, and it stops. He's in the boat. No more wind. They get to the shore. So, now the truth in verse 33, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. So in their minds, in that jigsaw puzzle portrait of Jesus that's been assembling, another big piece goes ka-chunk, and they see him 
as the Son of God. They say truly the Son of God. Others may be called the Son of God. Maybe some call Caesar the Son of God or others. But you really are the Son of God. You're not just a quote-unquote Son of God. You're not just functioning like a Son of God. You really are the Son of God. Why do they say that? Because they see God-like powers in Him. Not, not small g God, but big g God. Yahweh-like powers in Him. Resonant in Him. And so uh, they, they confess Him and they worship Him. And Jesus says, well, nothing. You would say what? Stop. (laughs) Any person would say, stop. But Jesus doesn't. Why? Jesus had said to Satan earlier, "Uh, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Right? And here they worship him. And what does Jesus say? Not boo. Kind of already said boo, I guess, in a way, at least to their minds. But he doesn't say it here. He accepts their worship. Then we come to the epilogue in verses 34 through 36. And crossing over, they came to the land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent word into all that vicinity, and they brought to him all those doing badly. And they kept urging him that they might only touch the tassel of his coat, and as many as touched were quite saved." This is a familiar scene. We've seen scenes like this. We just saw a scene like that. Remember, Jesus had gone away with the disciples to, to uh, have a retreat. And uh, he spends the time healing all these people. And so here's another scene. But what does that contrast with? Did we see a contrasting scene recently? Yeah, we did in Nazareth when he went into his hometown. What does Matthew say? He, wasn't, he didn't heal them because of their unbelief just to put his hand on a few sick people. So what does that say here? These people believe in Jesus in some way. To some degree, they believe in him like the Nazarenes did not believe in him. They had some kind of faith. And like Jesus says, it just takes faith like a mustard seed. And he, because of the power he has, is able to quite heal, quite save quite a few of them. Now, There's nothing brand new except there is something that I I think it's ironic. I I will ask Matthew when I see him if he meant it that way. But I think it's ironic. And it's it's a word he uses that has two senses. And he's used it in both senses. It's this word uh, translated recognized in verse 35. It's the Greek word epigenosko. And it can mean like to recognize somebody, to see somebody and then connect them with knowledge you've already got. I know that face, it's familiar. Oh, that's Jesus in this case. But the same verb also can be used of having a deep, true knowledge of something. Matthew used it that way back in chapter 11. I'll read it to you, but note down Matthew 11 uh, verses, is it 25 through 27? Yeah, Matthew 20, sorry, 11, 27. Matthew 11, 27. Remember, Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one truly knows the Son except the Father. And here's that verb, epigenosko. No one really knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone really know, again, epigenosko, the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Matthew uses that word here. So I'm just wondering, is there a little irony? Because on the one hand, the disciples themselves just took a deeper step of understanding who Jesus was. They, they had seen him. They not even thought that he could feed all these thousands, but they saw him do it. And apparently it had not even occurred to them that he might come walking, you know, that he'd catch up with them by walking across the water. 
And yeah, here that is, and they see, well, you're the son of God. So they're coming to a deeper, deeper knowledge. And then he comes on the shore, and these people see Jesus, and they say, oh, yeah, we know he can heal sick people, so let's bring all the sick people to him. Okay, so they recognize him. They know he's Jesus, but do they really know him? That's what I wonder, if, if there isn't an irony here. They knew him, but they didn't really yet come to know him as the disciples are coming to know him. So there's the story, and I'd say a good spiritual feast in these words so far, but I want to draw some specific lessons and application from this. Now, Roman numeral two, we've seen an exposition of this section, the schooling on the sea. Now let's look at the lessons for life, and I'm just going to take three areas to apply to the life of us Christian believers. First, in the area of discipleship. And uh, let me make a few observations for you, three in number. Matthew might like that, as fond of threes as he is. But uh, the three I draw, first of all, is Jesus' lessons can come hard and fast. (laughs) And many seasoned Christian disciples would say a hearty amen. They can come hard and fast. And that's really the point of them. But now notice here, and I remind you, Jesus set this test up deliberately. Immediately, it says, he compelled them to get in the boat. So he had just gone aside with them because they were exhausted, right? Remember that? They were exhausted. They didn't even have time to eat. People coming and going constantly. And they just heard the news about John the Baptist. And so he wants to take a break. He goes across, they get no break, and immediately he compels them to get in the boat and start rowing so that they can row all night. That's his design. He put this, he's not stupid. He's not ever stupid. He designed this deliberately. That's why Matthew puts it the way he does. Immediately compelled them because he was setting it up. And this is how Jesus often does discipleship. Thank God he does give us breathers, but that's why I say lessons can and often do, come hard and fast. And as I'll try to show you, that's the point of them. It's deliberate. It's never out of cruelty, always out of love and wisdom. But they can come hard and fast, and they sure do for the disciples here. Right on the heels of one massive test comes another massive test. One huge, deep lesson, another huge, deep lesson about who Jesus is. Secondly, Jesus' lessons can deliberately take us to the end of ourselves. Now that one, probably I could drop the can, because <laughs> that they just do. But Jesus' lessons can deliberately take us to the end of ourselves. Notice that Jesus waited until they had rode themselves ragged. He waited till the fourth watch of the night. Didn't come the first, second, or third watch. He waited till it was 3, 4, 4.30 in the morning. And they were worn out, and they were just out of gas, we'd say. They're completely out of gas, exhausted. And that's when he decides that he's going to take a little stroll across the, across the H2O and see these boys and teach them a little something. And why is that important? Uh, very simply, listen, because if we have inner reserves, we'll turn to them. If we've got resources other than God, we will turn to them. 
if a, if a pill or a person or a poem, there we go, there's my three Ps, but, or if self-will or willpower or some saying will do it for us, why, that's our first go-to. That's where we'll reach the first time. That's just it's natural to us. It's just natural to us to do that. And so Jesus takes them to where there's nothing. They got nothing inside or outside. They're in the middle of a lake, in the dark, in a storm, exhausted. And that's when he comes to them to teach them something. So Jesus wants to teach us to trust him and to lean our full weight on him, which we can do, excuse me, yes, which we can do only if we've got nothing else to lean on. So you, you think Jesus has brought me to places where I've got nothing to lean on. I've got nothing but him. And then what you do is you say to him, thank you for loving me enough to teach me about trust. Because that's what he's doing. You need to remember, God always knows what he's doing. And as Psalm 119 says, all things are his servants, even the law of gravity, even the weather. All things are his servants. And as Psalm 3115 says, our times are in his hand. He's in utter control of absolutely everything. This is the only way we can trust that all things work together for good. Only if we believe God controls all things. Play with that and give up that verse, please, because it's not yours anymore. If you don't believe God absolutely controls everything, don't use that verse. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to people who believe that God actually does control all things. And so he does here. And so he comes to them deliberately by design when they're out of, they're out of everything. And all they've, got, all they've got is him. And what does he say? He doesn't say, don't fear, I'll do this and that for you. He just says, don't fear, I am he. He's enough in himself, even apart from his promises. Just having him is having enough. So, first, Jesus' lessons can come hard and fast. Second, Jesus' lessons can deliberately take us to the end of ourselves. Uh, Does he just do that with us? Do he not do it with David? Yes, we just read words of David being in deep waters. And that's not the only time David talks about having nothing under his feet and and crying and crying and making his bed uh, swim with his tears. And coming to the end of himself, being in deep distress and calling unto Lord, to the Lord because the Lord's all he's got until the Lord hears and answers. What about Paul? Paul has a thorn in the flesh. And he asks Jesus, take this thorn away from me. And he doesn't. So he asks him again, take this thorn away from me. I'd serve you so much better. And he doesn't. And he asks a third time, take this thorn away from me. And what does God say? He says, No. He says, my grace is sufficient for you for, what does he say next? Power is perfected in weakness. And that's how God deals with us. He brings us to where we're weak so he can show himself strong. When we trust in him, cling to him, lean on him. That's exactly what he does here. And thirdly, Jesus' lessons are entirely under Jesus' care and Jesus' control. What we learn about this, well, John tells us that Jesus actually could see them from where he was, up in the hillside. Jesus could actually see them and see what they were going through. So he was under, they were under his watchful care. But did they know that? Of course not. They didn't know that until later. And we also learn that as they were rowing and toiling, what was Jesus doing? Praying. What do you suppose he was praying for? 
them. Very well, very likely other things, but he's praying for them. But did they know that? No, they did not. He was watching, but they didn't know it. They didn't feel it. He was praying for them. They didn't know it. They didn't feel it. And then exactly at the right moment, Jesus ends the text as abruptly as he'd started it. He compels them to get rowing, and then fast forward, he steps into the boat, and what happens? Weather turns off. He starts the test. He stops the test. All of it is exactly within his control to teach them what he wants to teach them. That's, that's them. He's praying for them. They don't know it. He's watching them. They don't know it. Well, what about us? Is Jesus praying for us? Is Jesus watching us? I remind you of something Robert Murray McShane, a great saint of God, said. He said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Isn't that true? Isn't that what Scripture says? Jesus prays for us constantly. Hebrews 7.25, He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to do what? Make intercession for them. Do you see Him? No more than the apostles did. Do you hear Him? No more than the apostles did. Is He doing it? Yes. How do you know? God's Word tells us. How do, you, how do you get any good out of something like that? You need some power that is the substance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Well, that's faith. That's what faith does. And that's what this is teaching us about. It's teaching us about faith. Secondly, about feelings. Now we've learned about discipleship. We've learned about discipleship. Now letter B, let's, te- let's learn about feelings. Feelings. Verses 25 through 27. And on the fourth watch of the night, he came up to them walking across the sea. But the disciples seeing him upon the sea, walking, were shaken, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. And immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Stop being afraid. So listen, they saw Jesus and what they felt was terror. Do you think they felt a little terror, medium terror, or a lot of terror? I would say a lot of terror. Pure terror. They felt terror. Are those, were those feelings real to them, would you say? Sure they were. If someone had said to them, you don't really feel terror, what do you think they'd say? You're crazy. I know terror and I'm feeling it right now. Of course, they wouldn't say that. They'd just say, ah! And that would kind of be the answer. So feelings are real. Feelings are vivid. But they're not the truth. Why were they terrified? Because a ghost was walking up to them. Was it? No. But that's what they believed. Their faith caused their feelings. Their faith was, this is a scary ghost that means us evil. The fact was, it was the Lord Jesus Christ that means them nothing but good. But they didn't believe that, so they didn't feel that. They believed this, so they felt this. You see, faith causes feelings. Feelings follow faith either way. 
If faith is in error, feelings go towards error. If faith is in truth, feelings go towards truth. But so, deluded faith will cause deluded feelings. Bad feelings have at their root bad faith, assuming it's a delusion, assuming it's, it's faith in something that is wrong and not true. But notice the second thing here. They saw Jesus, they took him to, a, to be a ghost, they felt terror, but notice Jesus commands their feelings. Now, I thought you can't tell people to feel things. I've, I've, I've heard that many times. In fact, I'm afraid I have said that, but I stand corrected. Literally, I stand corrected. Because Jesus twice does command their feelings. He tells them what they should feel, and he tells them what they shouldn't feel. But it's like a, a, a fundamental article of faith in our culture that feelings are sovereign. You don't tell someone what to feel. What he feels, he feels, and that's right. And he, should, he has a right. He owns his feelings. He has a right to feel the way he does. But not to Jesus. He tells them what they should feel, and he tells them what they shouldn't feel. And he frames them both as commands. Start feeling this. Stop feeling this. Well, now that's, that's interesting. That's, that's instructive, isn't it? Because to Jesus' mind, obviously, facts and truth trump feelings. And we feel the way we do because we believe the way we do. The feelings we have are caused by the faith that we have. Their faith was in this idea of a malicious apparition. But that wasn't the fact of the matter. And so what we need to do is we need to dig under our feelings and get to the faith that underlies them. But many people don't do that. Uh, we're lazy, we're indulgent, we're narcissistic, and we feel something, and by golly, we, we feel it. Nobody better challenge that. What I feel is real. This is my reality, and nobody better say anything else. But I read in the text right here, the thing is they felt what they felt because they believed something that wasn't true. And Jesus tells, here's what, what says, what's, here's what is true, so stop feeling what isn't true and start feeling what is true. Deluding, deluded faith causes bad feelings. So we need to dig under these feelings and see what faith is it based on? Is it faith that is just based on our perception? Or is it faith that is based on the Word of God? Based on what God says, based on what God says to us? Is it just force of habit? Is it just what we usually do? Uh, then we need to challenge that. And I, I just, I wonder, not academically, how many people live in depression and self-pity and sadness and fear and ingratitude for this very reason, because they've never taken their feelings, we've never taken our feelings to the Word of God and challenged those feelings by the Word of God and gotten to the root of what are feeling, and, and if need be, repenting and beginning to learn. Now, I am not saying that this can be done on a dime, but I am saying it needs to be done. It's part of discipleship, and Jesus certainly faces them with it very abruptly here. So we've talked about discipleship, we've talked about feelings. Third, now let's talk about faith. This teaches us so much about faith. First, faith finds Jesus in the darkness. Now, I say to you, Jesus is not always obvious. He was praying for them. They couldn't see it or hear it. He was coming to them. They didn't know it was him. But he was. And the thing is, if we're not looking for him, then we won't see him as he is. 
We'll just see the darkness. We'll just see the wind. We'll just see the waves, even if he's coming to us in that wind, in that darkness, in those waves. A number of scriptures point this way. I'll just give you a couple. Isaiah 43, verse 2. A promise these disciples had but didn't reach for right now. Isaiah 43, 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. Isaiah 43, 2. I will be with you. Isaiah 50, 10. Who among you, who is among you that fears Yahweh, that listens to the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of Yahweh and rely on his God. In darkness, no light, but trust in God and lean on God. Well, wouldn't it be good to have God with us? Then we could trust at all times. Oh, look, let me bring you back to the Gospel of Matthew and remind you about its bracket, about how it starts and how it ends. What do we see at the start? The birth of Jesus. What does uh, the Scripture say about the birth of Jesus? Matthew 1, 2, 3. Matthew 1, 23. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means what? God with us. <clears throat> that's Jesus' name, God with us. And you say, well, that's an isolated thing. No, it isn't. Turn to the end of the gospel and look at the very last words of the gospel. And what are they? Matthew 28, 20. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He's with us in all kinds of situations. He's in us at all time. With, he's with us at all times. He's with us in all seasons. Jesus is with his believers. Faith finds Jesus in the darkness. Secondly, faith fixes on God's word. I want you to notice, did Peter say, well, if it's you, I'll just walk on water to you? Is that what Peter said? Yes or no? If it's you, I'll just walk on the water to you. Does he say that? What does he say? If it's you, order me and I'll come to you. Now, what does that teach us? Peter wanted the word of God before he would act. That was a, that's a great lesson. Again, you know, go Peter. <laughs> go Peter. You're teaching us here. He wanted God's word. And if he had God's word, he'd act. Now, look, contrast that to the second temptation in Matthew 4. What did Satan say to Jesus? Throw yourself off the temple. God will catch you. Had God told Jesus to jump off the temple? No. But Satan said, you just do it. He'll catch you. Does Jesus do it? No, he does not. <laughs> no, he does not. And neither does Peter. He wouldn't have come out of the boat if Jesus hadn't said. But he says, you give me the word and I'll do it. Faith is not whipping up feelings or confidence about something we want to believe. That is not faith. And if, you're, if you didn't hear it, I'd encourage you to listen to the mini, sec, uh, mini series we had on faith a while back. It's all up on Sermon Audio. But that's not faith. Faith is not convincing myself that something I want to believe is true. What is faith? Faith starts with the Word of God. Faith understands the Word of God, believes that the Word of God is true, and rests on that Word, embraces it, puts all my weight on it. And that's exactly what's happening here. Peter wants a word from Jesus, and if he has that word, then he'll act on it. And look, once he has a word from Jesus, he can do what nobody else has ever done, except Jesus. He can walk on water, because Jesus ordered him to. Come, Jesus said. And Peter finds himself doing what no brother of his has ever done in all the history of mankind. Not an undiscovered human ability, but 
out of faith and the power of Jesus. Now, look, that's, that's very interesting, isn't it? That's very interesting. Yes, it is. And so I ask you, what are you already ordered to do by Jesus that you're not doing? Because of fear, because of self-pity, because of a bunch of explanations, God has ordered you to love your neighbor. God has ordered you to love your brothers and sisters in the assembly strenuously. Get out of your rut and go do it. Not what's comfortable, not what's easy, but what's needed. God has ordered us all, as Jesus has laid down his life for us, to lay down our life for one another. He's ordered us all to look to one another closely and care for one another and exhort one another and encourage one another and pray for one another. Uh, He's ordered us to do that. So what's keeping us from doing that? It's not faith. Because faith hears the word and acts on it. Uh, Sacrificially serving him in his church. What fear is keeping us from doing that? What fear is keeping us from being members who are serving and contributing to the full of our ability? Faith is not keeping us from it. Fear might be. Self-pity might be. A thousand excuses might be. But that's not faith. What's keeping us from boldly speaking to unbelievers about Christ? It's not faith. It could be fear. But faith fixes on God's word, trusts it, acts on it. That's what Peter does. And finally, and and in line with this, number three, faith fortifies us for the impossible. And by that, I want to be very clear. What I mean is not achieving our huge goals of starring on Broadway and being a famous author or politician. I mean doing what God calls us to do in living holy, godly, God-honoring lives. You say, well, that doesn't sound very impossible. Well, then you do it. (laughs) Well, then go do it if it's that easy. Just go do it. You've never felt the the difficulty until you start putting your shoulder to it. It is impossible to us naturally. We need the enabling of God to live that kind of a life. And faith fortifies us for godly, holy, loving living. Charles Spurgeon says very well, we can do anything if we have divine authorization and courage enough to take the Lord at his word. We can do anything if we have God's authorization and the courage and faith to take God at his word. We need strong faith for every step, moment by moment. Faith focused on Jesus enables us to defy the natural, as Peter did and as a fallen, redeemed sinner does when he loves someone else and not just himself. That's faith defying the natural. But faith deflected from Jesus to our feelings, to our world, to the devil, falters and sinks. Faith is buoyant, but doubt is dead weight. Peter did not have no faith, but he did have little faith. Jesus calls him little faith, but not no faith. And I do end by just pointing out, heaven does not sympathize with our lack of faith. I see again and again, and even among professed Christians, among Christian pastors and leaders, kind of a lionizing of doubt. It makes you feel bad if you've never doubted, you know. You're really missing out because you haven't doubted God's word. Uh, well, I'll tell you, no angel and God has, has ever commended doubt. Scripture has nothing good to say about doubt. Nothing. God does not see it as reasonable. Think of what doubt is at its heart. It's being torn. That's what the, the Greek word literally means. Torn in two. On the one hand, you know the word's true. But on the other hand, you're really kind of leaning on this feeling, this, this prejudice, this long-held notion. Uh, and so you're, you're split. So think of yourself going to God and saying, well, God, you've got to understand, 
I don't find your word to be completely credible. Just because you say it, that's not enough reason for me to believe it. And imagine God saying, I see your point. This is never going to happen. God who created all things, knows all things, understands all things, and has all authority, and we don't take him at his word, that needs to be our goal, taking him at his word. So Peter had little faith, and Jesus challenged him on it. God sees himself as utterly trustworthy, and my question to, to us is, do we see God as utterly trustworthy, and does it show in our lives? So we've seen deadweight doubt. Peter did what no man had ever done, but the moment he takes his eyes off of Jesus, he does what every man would have done, which is sink. But we also see buoyant faith. When Peter has a word from Jesus and trusts and obeys, he walks on water, such as only Jesus to that point had ever done. How much more could we serve and honor God if we believed him and acted on his word? If we took him at his word and did his word? So I may just make this my closing question for every sermon because it's always going to fit. If what we've looked at has prodded you and shown you areas that you need to deal with as a Christian, when are you going to do that? What's keeping you from acting on it? Will it be today? When do we start? We've heard the word of God. Am I going to hear people saying to me on the way out that they've, that they've realized you know, it's high time that I became a member and started serving to, to all the abilities God's given me? I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Uh, when does faith come to action in our lives? Well, the Word of God always calls us to action in our lives. And so we see it here in the power illustrated for us in this story of the buoyancy of faith and the dead weight of doubt. Let us pray. Well, Father, we thank you for this powerful word and this powerful story, and we thank you for our powerful Savior. And it it challenges every one of us to to one point or another. We've all known darkness in our lives and times of, of terror and fear and feeling so alone. Thank you for the reminder that we never really are alone, that though it might be dark, though we might feel alone, our Lord Jesus, if we've repented and believed in him as our Savior, is always praying for us. He's always watching us. He always has the situation in exact control, and it will be changed the moment he chooses to change it. But until then, he has still truth to teach us in it. Help us learn what it means to trust him in the darkness and look to him even in times that are trying and stormy because he is faithful. And for those who don't know Jesus and and can only look at these blessings and these assurances, we too pray the Holy Spirit will lead them to see that today is the day of salvation and lead them to come to trust in the Lord Jesus and begin their life with him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.